Welcome to the INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. The Infusion Nurses Society is recognized as the global authority in infusion therapy and is devoted to setting the standard for infusion care. I'm Dawn Berendt, your podcast host and the Clinical Education and Publications Manager for INS. Welcome and thank you for joining me today on the INS Infusion Room. Our podcast today includes three discussions related to COVID-19. We're going to start out the program answering the top four COVID-19 practice questions received by INS. After that, I'm joined by INS leadership to talk through the postponement of INS 2020, our national conference, and we're also going to discuss the fact that INS employees are working from home. Lastly, we will wrap up today's podcast with a discussion with guest Abigail Zilke. Abigail is a nurse with an infusion background. She is CRNI certified, and she currently works in an emergency department. And she will be talking about assessing and initiating care for patients with COVID-19. Before we begin those segments of the podcast, I want to take a moment to relate how proud we are of our nation's healthcare employees. We understand that we are facing one of the most challenging periods in our collective professional careers. We also understand that most are working through exhaustion, frustration, personal loss, and change that saturates every aspect of our lives. Working through the COVID-19 pandemic will perhaps be the most challenging work we have ever performed. We want you to know that our response regarding your work through this time is well done. We are thankful for and so proud of you. Now, let's move on and we're gonna address some of the clinical questions passed on to INS. I want to preface the Q&A section by reading the following statement that was issued by INS last week. INS acknowledges the plight of the public, our members, and valued colleagues as we work collectively to manage the many concerns associated with COVID-19. Many are asking if INS is able to give new guidance regarding modification for adherence to the INS infusion therapy standards of practice. While we are unable at this time to recommend modifications to the established standards of practice, we recognize the challenges many are facing due to scarcity of supplies and also limited number of caregivers. When experiencing scarcity or depletion of PPE and other healthcare supplies due to COVID-19 pandemic, each organization must determine best alternative practices to ensure safest care for patient protection and for the caregiver. Question one. Our organization is trying to limit the number of times we enter the room for patients in COVID-19 isolation. For that reason, we are connecting several long extension sets to our pump administration tubing so that we can bring the pump outside the patient's room to silence alarms, program, and change infusion bags. I have to tell you, this is the most common question that INS is receiving right now. We receive this question daily, and we need to address it. So our answer, and I, you know, forgive me, I'm, it's going to sound like I'm reading because I am. The answer is long and detailed. But in this answer, we're addressing the practice of adding extension sets to the pump administration set and pulling the pump outside the patient's room to silence alarms, program, and change infusion bags. This is the answer. 
While this practice is not ideal and not recommended, if organizations must resort to this method during the COVID-19 crisis, clinicians must evaluate the following risks and challenges to provide the safest care possible. Regarding tubing, long expanses of tubing which facilitate bringing the pump outside the patient's door will add these potential safety risks. Tubing on the floor it will increase the risk of infection. Multiple lure connections of the added extension sets will increase the risk for tubing disconnection, creating loss of medication, will open the system to air, and will increase the risk of infection. This practice will also perhaps increase the risk for incomplete or inaccurate infusion rates due to drug remaining in the added length of tubing after secondary infusions are complete. It could also cause delayed medication administration due to drug remaining in the added length of tubing. It also could cause inaccurate infusion rates due to added challenge of distance on the operating mechanism of the infusion pump. So after addressing those tubing-related issues, let's move on to assessment issues. Lack of patient assessment during medication administration will pose additional risks to patient safety, including delayed response and intervention for infiltrations and extravasations. Absence of or delayed assessment of patient's response to medication, including allergic or hypersensitivity type reactions. Delayed response to assessment of pain, numbness, redness, tenderness, change of temperature of the skin or color of the skin at the infusion site or the associated extremity, all of which are indications of complications and the inability to perform increased assessment needs for critically ill or sedated patients because these patients are unable to communicate. They can't press their call light. INS standard says that we need to assess those patients much more frequently, at least every one to one and a half hours. And the final component of this response from INS is concerning the alarms. Silencing or canceling perceived nuisance pump alarms, such as air and line alarms or upward or downward occlusion alarms, without assessing the patient and the infusion system, bypasses the pump-issued safety system, which is intended to protect the patient from harm. So if this alternative practice is to be used, please note that clinicians and providers must evaluate the risks and challenges associated with bringing the pump outside the room to limit clinician entry in and out of the room to manage the pump. Okay, the next question. How long can we leave a CVAD dressing on when we are short on PPE or we don't have enough nurses to change every seven days in home care settings? Okay, so we're asking a question about home care. Uh, the concern is we might not have enough clinicians and we might not have enough PPE. And the question again, could we leave the CVAD dressing on longer than seven days? INS's response. There is no supportive evidence that enables INS to change the timeliness recommended in the infusion therapy standards of practice for CVAD dressing change. The risk for central line-associated bloodstream infection or CLABSI is increased if the dressing changes are not performed at recommended intervals. The following suggestions may be helpful when managing home care patients under extreme circumstances created by the COVID-19 crisis. The first approach is 
to work to maintain dressing integrity. It is imperative that each CVAD dressing change be performed with great care to ensure the dressing remains intact until the next dressing change. That means that we need to be careful to allow adequate dry time after cleansing and prepping the skin and before applying the dressing. Once placed, we need to smooth or rub the transparent dressing over the entire surface to ensure that the adhesive is bonded well to the patient's skin. When applicable, place a stockinette or other similar stretch garment over the CVAD dressing to reduce friction, snagging, or tugging on the CVAD, anything that can kind of keep it in place that's, that's helpful. And then we need to instruct the patient, and I know we do this, but we need to re-emphasize that that dressing must be kept dry to maintain integrity of the dressing. So we might, again, offer new suggestions or supplies necessary to facilitate bathing if necessary. Um, for the next piece, this is to new instructions or added instructions for the patient to report dressing dislodgement. Um, so we want to um, get the pa patient in the home care setting to notify the home health agency if the dressing has become loose or soiled. Um, and we need to make sure that we're providing a means by which the home care patient may communicate with the home care agency during the COVID-19 crisis, especially if uh, there is a length of time greater than um, what is usually scheduled to visit in the home with these patients. Lastly, um, although this is not recommended, it is a possibility, um, train a patient, family, or friend in CVAD dressing change procedure. So if home care clinicians are truly unable to perform a CVAD dressing change in a timely manner, it might be prudent to teach a patient's reliable friend or relative the steps to perform a CVAD dressing change for patients in home care settings. There are risks if engaging an amateur or novice to perform this skilled task, though. Organizations must address the following items if resorting to this alternative approach to skilled nursing. Um, note that pick dislodgement is a significant risk, especially for those who are new to dressing change practice. Instructions for amateur or novice persons must address how to avoid catheter slippage if the securement device is removed with the dressing change, according to manufacturer's instructions. Um, this this is real. Um, that is one of the things that needs to be addressed right up front. Um, that, you know, although they might have the allowance and the understanding of how to change the dressing, they also need to make sure that the, the device is, stays in and unchanged. Also, uh, another thing that needs to happen is we need to provide information on aseptic technique and the practice thereof. Remember that we are teaching lay people who uh, don't have this background of knowledge that nurses do. Um, the dressing change kit and supplies must be provided by the home care agency and instructions for each item that's included in that kit have to be given regarding how it is used and how it is disposed. Instructions must also include assessment of skin and the CVAD exit site, and how to report concerns when necessary. Okay, on to the next question. These are hard. Uh, I think these questions are hard. Nurses are being asked to do things that they probably would have never considered a few weeks ago. Um, so this question. During the COVID-19 crisis, can we use pump administration sets for longer periods of time than the infusion therapy standards of practice indicate. So again, the question is, can we use infusion pump sets longer than the 96 hours? Um, that's pretty standard for most basic infusions. Um, INS's response to this question. 
there is no supportive evidence that enables INS to change the timeliness recommended in the infusion therapy standards of practice for administration set change. Administration set change intervals are dependent on the type of infusate administered, the duration of use, or if suspected contamination or breach of the system has occurred. Extending the use of administration sets beyond these dates truly increases the risk for infection. Um, at this time, I am not aware of shortages of tubing sets. Um, perhaps this is related to something else, so I want to make sure we address this question. But this is one where you know, I think we need to really hold steady with um, the standards. And I'm going to review for you um, uh, the administration set frequency by administration type. So if it's a continuous infusion with primary and secondary sets, we wouldn't change before 96 hours, but we would change at 96 hours typically. Um, intermittent uh, sets um, that are primary and secondary, meaning they're disconnected, reconnected, um, we would change those every 24 hours. Uh, those used for hemodynamic or arterial pressure monitoring, uh, those are disposable and reusable transducers, etc. Those would be changed every 96 hours. Okay, um, we have another table that we like to refer to. And if you um, go on the INS website under the COVID-19 uh, banner, you'll see these tables, this whole document will be ready for you if you'd like to print it out and share it. But um, as I mentioned, the infusate type also dictates how frequently we need to change that administration set. So for blood and blood components, um, it's either continuous or a single unit. It needs to be changed at the end of four hours. For intravenous fat emulsion, every 24 hours, for parenteral nutrition, every 24 hours, and um, propofol, those infusions every 6 to 12 hours. Uh, so definitely uh, a shorter duration of time. So those we really cannot leave on longer than the number of hours that are stated here. So we're on to question four now. Um, this person writes, with the looming shortages coming, our company is trying to be creative in making sure that we have everything we need for the safety of our patients. As you know, face masks are at a premium. We work with complex patients who need TPN, and therefore, they all have central lines. Are there any recommendations for nurses and caregivers using reusable masks for CVC dressing changes? We've had a lot of discussion about this, and since they are essentially a barrier, I uh, wanted to know um, what the stance on INS is. So again, to restate this question, this individual is asking, can we use a used mask or a reusable mask for CVAD dressing changes. INS's response to this, since all vascular access device dressing changes are performed following a septic technique, all supplies used in this procedure, including the face mask, must be sterile. Sterile masks are included in most dressing change kits. And although this could vary by supplier, the mask is immediately available at the start of the procedure when you open the kit. Uh, the CVAD site and surrounding skin is really vulnerable to contamination during the dressing change process. And therefore, it is essential that all components of the used in the process are sterile to prevent collapse. So... ANA today, now this is March 24th at the time of this recording, ANA is releasing some information about um, mask use. I'm going to refer you to that site and in the show notes on this page, 
I will um, give you those links. Um, but ANA has a stance. And one of the things that they addressed was um, the cloth or fabric masks that are being provided. Um, some of them are being made in the community. Uh, it's such a kind gesture. Uh, but the masks come in in variety of fabrics and um, with some padding or something in there. And they're the over-the-ear type of masks. Um, they're going in. And I've heard some healthcare organizations say, we're going to use these for patients. Uh, patients or family members who come in can put this mask on. Uh, they are not to be used for clinicians. Um, but I, I do want to defer to ANA. They have put together a very nice spot on their website and they have a couple attachments uh, that you'll be able to get once you go there. So I'll, I'll send you those links at the bottom of the show notes um, that address the shortages of masks and what to do and what not to do with these types of masks that are available. And this concludes, these are the four uh, most frequent questions that INS has addressed uh, repeatedly in the past week or so. And um, we do encourage you to let us know what kind of questions are coming up in your practice areas. We will do our best to get an answer back to you. I know these things are not easy. And as I said, nurses are being asked to practice in ways that we would have never considered um, two weeks or even a month ago. Uh, thank you so much for sending your concerns our way. So today, I am so happy to have with me Chris Hunt, the INS Executive Vice President, Maria Connors, the Director of Operations and Member Services, and Megan Trupiano, the INS Meetings Manager. Welcome to each of you. Uh, Maria, let's start with you. I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about what you do at INS. Sure. Um, my title is quite a mouthful, and I have several uh, facets to my role. I am responsible for member services. I'm also responsible for the marketing department. I work uh, directly with the executive leadership team in strategic planning, and I'm also responsible for all of the HR functions for our staff. Thank you. Okay, Chris, let's go to you. Sure. Um, well, I, as the executive vice president, uh, I work with the executive team to develop strategies for uh, strategic growth along with overall organizational growth. Very good. And Megan. Hi. And as meetings manager, I plan the logistics for the annual meeting and work closely with the education department and how they their educational piece ties into the annual meeting and work with the virtual meetings at INS. Thank you. Megan, you're kind of going to be star of the show here in a little bit, but I'm going to put the first question to Chris. Chris, now most of our listeners have already learned that INS 2020, our annual conference, has been postponed. Now, while it, this isn't surprising, given the necessary cancellations and closures that we've all experienced locally, nationally, and even internationally, let's talk about how this particular cancellation impacts INS's membership. Well, actually, what we're hoping for is that uh, we're postponing the meeting actually till August. So we're, we're hoping that we can still conduct the meeting um, as planned just a little bit later on. But the annual meeting has always provided a buzz and an excitement that really can only happen when it's face to face. However, the circumstances surrounding COVID-19 have certainly changed everybody's life, INS and its attendees and its members included in that. So. By moving it out to August, what we're hoping is that the situation starts to clear itself up and folks can can still attend this meeting because it's something that is looked forward to by everybody, it, not only just our inter, our domestic members, but our international folks, our exhibitors. It's it's a it's the one meeting a year where the entire community gets together, the entire infusion community gets together to really learn about new and different things. And it's something that they obviously look forward to and with fingers crossed, we can still pull this off in August. Absolutely. So Megan, let's move over to you. 
as the INS meetings director, you're the one who uh, takes all the pieces of our conference, puts them all together, and you really work to create a great experience for our attendees. I know rescheduling this event has some challenges, so let's talk about some of the logistics and what our registrants really need to know about this postponement. Thanks, Don. So, yeah, as Chris mentioned, we are postponing our meeting and, and we aren't canceling. So we just want to make that very clear. We've tried to make that very clear in all of our communications with our attendees and our membership that we are postponing and rescheduling for another date. And we don't have any plans to cancel the meeting. We're just taking everything that's happening in May and moving it to August. So everything that's supposed to happen at the May meeting, we have no intentions of changing anything around. It will just all go on at a later date. So that's the good news. And then it just becomes challenging with some of the logistics that have already been put in place for a lot of our attendees, our speakers, and our exhibitors. So I'll kind of touch upon those important topics right now as I run through them. So the first one I was going to start off was with is hotel registrations, because we have had about probably 500 people already reserve a hotel room at the INS Headquarter Hotel. That's the Rio All Suites Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. That's also the hotel where the conference takes place. So all of those people have reserved a room in May. And INS will also provide everyone who has reserved a room a full refund for canceling the room in May. So for those attendees who have reserved a room, all they need to go, do is go into their email confirmation that they received from the hotel. And there's an option in there to cancel or change your reservation. And you can just easily cancel it that way and get fully refunded for any deposits that they had paid for. And if you have any issues, you can always contact INS or the hotel and they'd be happy to help you in canceling those reservations. So that pretty much covers the hotel. The next important topic I would say would be the meeting registration that we've had about 450 people already register for the meeting. So, and along with our exhibitors too, um, for the attendees that registered for the meeting, if you are still joining us in August, it's very simple. We will just transfer your meeting registration to the August meeting. So there's nothing you need to do if you're still joining us in August. If for some reason you need to cancel and you cannot come anymore, then you can just contact INS member services prior to June 15th, and they will be happy to help you with a refund. Another important topic is same kind, very similar to meeting registration is exhibitors, exhibitors reserve booth space. So similar to our attendees, their booth space fee will automatically transfer to the August meeting. However, due to a scheduling conflict, they can reach out to myself and I will refund their booth. And lastly, um, I know another important piece that many people have already done is booked their airfare. And unfortunately, INS can't do anything about canceling airfare, but we do recommend that attendees just contact the airline. And um, many of them, almost all I would say, are waiving cancellation fees. So as an attendee, you should not have trouble canceling your flight for the meeting in May. I think that covers a lot of the important topics that people are worried about. We will have all this information on our website. We will email everyone. It will be posted on social media. So we're trying our best to make sure everyone is in the know with all the important information and trying to make it as easy as possible for our attendees, our membership, our exhibitors, and our speakers to all easily reschedule to these new dates. Okay, thank you so much. And we'll make sure that these um, show notes also include this. So Maria, I know that you have a message for us um, at INS, for our membership, for our colleagues out there, and also for our public. Um, could you share some of that? Sure. Um, I wanted our membership to know that, um, that your safety is our utmost concern. Our membership is made up of frontline healthcare workers, so our concern is first and foremost for their safety and their current call to duty. 
The decision to postpone the meeting wasn't easily made. We were trying to follow national and local directives. We were closely monitoring the changes that were daily, sometimes hourly, and trying to do whatever we could to figure out what to do about the meeting. We didn't want to be premature, but as the situation unfolded, we knew that we had to postpone, and that was in the best interest of our community. Our next concern was to establish the firm dates, which Megan just talked about, so that we could get the information out as soon as possible and as thoroughly as possible so that our members, our our community is not worried about getting a refund or postponing or whatever, that they can focus their efforts where they're most needed right now. That's what's important to INS. Yes, absolutely. These decisions are so hard. And like you said, you know, we were talking about this a long time before we put out the fact that a decision uh, had been made. And um, that was a that was a really tough set of conversations to have. But, you know, as things changed in the United States, it was a little bit easier for us to make the decision. Megan, I know that you are really busy trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. <laughs> and I know it's so hard to take all of the pieces of a conference knit them all back together again and recreate what we had planned for May 2020. Um, I'm going to have you tell us next what our INS members can expect and what our hopes are. Uh, Yes. So as Maria mentioned, things are changing very fast. So INS has been trying also to keep up with the changes as we postponed the meeting. So I think our biggest concern in the beginning was just letting everyone know it was being postponed. And then that moved to making sure everyone knew it was postponed for these dates. We didn't want to take too long to figure out a new date. So all the basic logistics needed to move really fast. And now we have time to reconfigure all the little details that go into the meeting and hope that they each transition smoothly to August. So what was happening on Saturday in May at the meeting happens on Saturday in August at the meeting. So we now have some time to work on that, that part of the planning. And we just hope that everyone can still join us in August and just bear with us in our membership services department, who's responding to all the requests right now, because they're getting a lot of questions and they're trying their best to help everyone as quickly as they can. And Anyone who's concerned about a refund, if that's what you're worried about and you haven't heard back from us, you will be refunded. So I just don't want anyone to be worried about that. Okay, thank you. Chris, I'm going to ask you to remind our listeners about the ability to earn recertification units for those who are concerned with CRNI recertification yet in 2020. Sure. Uh, For anyone that's due to recertify at the end of this year and you were using the INS annual meeting or INS 2020 as the basis for earning those research units and you can't attend now that we've made the switch to August, rest assured you will still be able to recertify as there are plenty of other options available outside of INS 2020. Specifically, if you go to the INS Learning Center, there is a tab on there that's named CRNI Recertification Approved. All of the conference materials, the virtual learning, conference learning programs, webinars, everything that is eligible to earn an RU, a recertification unit, is contained within that tab. And from there, there's there's more than enough for you as a CRNI to earn what you need to recertify. So while we hope that folks who were originally going to come and join us in May, we're hoping that you can make it in August. But if you can't and you're a CRNI, please rest assured you have every opportunity to do so within the learning center. So don't feel that your CRNI is, is at risk. It is not. Very good. Maria, COVID-19 has forced all of us to rethink how we live, how we work. And I'm seeing so many creative solutions coming together to help people stay connected, uh, homeschool their children, run businesses, you name it. I can't help but think that we are discovering new ways of doing things that just simply didn't exist a couple weeks ago. What do you think INS has learned from all this and how might this change um, how we interface with our members in the future? That's a great question, Don. I feel like 
we've already learned so much. One thing we've learned is that we are on the right path, or we were on the right path, um, perhaps a bit slow to evolve, but now that's been sort of, uh, we've been catapulted <laughs> into a, a quicker evolution. But we've been building a virtual library for over five years, not in preparation for something like this, but it's certainly put us in a good position when this crisis occurred. So the trend towards more virtual education is is definitely going to take off from here. And we are in a very good position for that. Timing is absolutely everything. We recently debuted our Fundamentals of Infusion Therapy program, which is a completely virtual interactive learning resource. And one of the first calls I got when this COVID-19 shut down schools was from a nursing program at a college in California. Uh, they wanted to talk about how they could use the FIT program to enhance their virtual learning program that they were struggling to put into place quickly. From there, we pulled together a plan to offer the FIT program to schools of nursing along with complimentary student membership to allow them access to all the webinars in the learning center. Our education department quickly came up with mapping to offer a list of complimentary webinars to enhance the FIT program learning. So if you asked me what we learned about how to interface with our members, I would say we learned how to be adaptable and re as responsive as we can be. I feel like we've always been member focused and driven to provide what our members need. And when it came down to it, I felt like we were in an excellent position to face the need and provide a solution to an even more expanded population than our membership. Excellent. I know it's really difficult for us to imagine future work right now, and it seems like we're just living in moment to moment, and we're dealing with change almost daily. And we want our members and colleagues to know that although we're facing the challenges that COVID-19 brings us, INS continues to move forward, you know. Early in 2021, we will issue the newly revised infusion therapy standards of practice. And along with that, we are so excited that all the policy and procedure manuals will be newly revised at the same time as well. In 2020, we also have a new product that we're putting together, and it's the INS point of care reference set. And the point of care reference set is a fully laminated, fully cleansable tool that was created for use at the patient's side. It's right at the point of care. Clinicians will appreciate having a step-by-step -step reference at their fingertips to guide them through procedures, complications, and vascular access device planning and management as well. Um, we are taking both the INS standards of practice and the policies and procedures for infusion therapy, putting those two things together and bringing very specific help to the bedside. And we are really excited to bring that to you as well. Maria, we've posted a notice on the INS website stating that INS employees are working remotely due to COVID-19. Tell us how INS was prepared to manage remote employment and how might remote employment for the INS team impact communication or bookstore orders? Of course. Uh, we were closely monitoring the situation as it unfolded, and I kept hearing how large companies were being asked to disperse their workforce to remote. Now, we're not a large company by any means. We're 13 staff, in, um, 11 of them in the home office in Norwood, Massachusetts. But I knew this was something we needed to prepare for. And luckily, we were in a good position for that. Several years ago, INS adopted a remote work policy. Out of that policy, we were able to expand our talent pool, opening up positions such as in the education department, for example, to like the best and the brightest in our INS community. In addition to that, we also allowed employees to choose flexible work schedules, either a compressed work week for 10-hour days, or a remote work option where they could work one to two days a week from home. So when the time came to disband the office to work remotely, there were only two employees who were not set up to work from home. Um, so in a matter of days, we had the remote capabilities set up for these two employees, got them established, and the office was, for all intents and purposes, remote. So our transition was somewhat seamless, with the exception of the phones. We are all working off of an app on our personal cell phones, which doesn't have all of the capabilities of the office phone system 
So if members call in with questions, the call may not be answered immediately, but if they leave a message, you can be assured somebody will get back to you. Someone will respond as, as soon as possible. Honestly, right now, I feel like email is the preferred method of communication. Member services can forward specific inquiries to the most appropriate staff member and you'll get a prompt response. So if at all possible, if you can email your questions, it's much easier and I think you'll get a quicker response time. With that said, there are still tasks that need to be performed physically, such as shipping. We used to pride ourselves on shipping response time. If an order came in, it was shipped out the next day. In light of the remote transition, one of our member services associates, shout out to Susan, volunteered to go into the office to ship the orders. Uh, The intent was originally for her to go in to ship weekly, but she's actually gone in every other day to make sure the the orders are getting out timely. So we thank Susan for that. If that changes in the future, we will try to post a message on the website about shipping orders. It will be on the main homepage and also on the COVID-19 page. If we are not allowed to go into the office, that would certainly have an effect on shipping. In addition, the other person that's going into the office is our bookkeeper. She's going in to process invoice payments, deposit incoming checks, um, help keep things flowing so that we can refund anybody in a timely manner that needs to cancel if they can't make it in August. Chris and I have established a schedule where we're going in alternately to check on the office, to go through the mail, make sure the operation keeps running. Excellent. Chris, I'm going to move back to you and I'm going to give you free mic. And that's always a dangerous thing to do. But I wanted to give you a moment to speak to our members, speak to our listeners about anything else that we'd like to share right now during this time. I'd love to. Thank you, Don. Um, I think Maria hit it best when she talked about our number one concern being the well-being of our membership. As you look through uh, this whole COVID-19 and you're hearing about, you know, shutdowns and work from home and working remote, the thing, and what you also hear about is the people on the front lines, the doctors, the nurses, those folks. That's our membership. That's, you know, that's something that we take pride in knowing that as an organization, we develop resources, we develop answers to our membership that's on the front line of, of serving right now the patients who are suffering from this coronavirus. So it gives a different look for us when we take a look at this. It's not just like any other organization that has to you know, put a stop to the way they do things. Our folks still have to keep going. They don't get to take a, a time off. They've got to now be on the front lines and in a really a, a difficult situation. They don't have all of the equipment that they need. And we're hearing that time and time again over the over the radio and over the TV. So as an organization, I just would like to extend our appreciation and our thanks to the membership for everything that they do. Uh, and just know that we're here for you in any way that we can help. So just don't be afraid to, to reach out to us. Again, in terms of the meeting, we hope that this is taken care of by August, and we hope we get a chance to, to get together as a group, as an organization, and celebrate all that being an infusion nurse means. So please, the best of luck to all of you. Be safe. Wash your hands. You don't have to say that, but we're going to say it anyway. Wash your hands, and please be safe out there. I want to thank you, Chris, Maria, and Megan, for being guests today on the INS Infusion Room and for talking with our listeners. After the break, I'll be talking with Abigail Zilke, who will be sharing about assessing and initiating care for patients with COVID-19. Welcome back. I am so happy today to have with me Abigail Zilke. Abigail, welcome to the INS Infusion Room podcast. Thank you for having me. Abigail, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your nursing background and your practice. Sure, no problem. Um, I've been a nurse about five years now. I started out in outpatient infusion and really kind of caught the bug. I would still say that's a big part of what I'm passionate about, uh, giving chemotherapies and other treatments. 
pretty quickly thereafter, I did seek out um, and achieve my CRNI. And I can definitely still say that's kind of the lens that I look at things through. Um, after a few years working outpatient infusion, giving chemotherapies, um, I did some time in a medical ICU, which was awesome. I learned a lot. Again, just used a lot of my CRNI knowledge base. I was able to float a lot at that time period. And then I'm currently kind of employed in an emergency department. And I'm also a full-time student getting my uh, adult gerontology acute care nurse practitioner worked on. So it's really neat, in my opinion, kind of to have that CRNI background. And it's really um, it's really helped me throughout every stage of my career and every different job shift I've had. And it's even helped me as a student now currently. So if I can give a little plug for if anyone's studying for it, definitely go for it. It's the whole process really enriches everything else that you do. Thank you so much. You have accomplished so much, and I know you and I have talked before, and you recently presented an INS webinar, um, and you have such a rich <laughs> background of experience that I don't know how you've crammed all of that into five years, but uh, we are very proud of you, proud of the work that you do. And today I've invited you to talk with me about COVID-19. You have a unique perspective um, being that you've worked in an emergency department um, as of late, and you've shared with us some guidelines, some resources. And in these conversations, I thought, you know what, Abigail is just the person that we want to share um, with our podcast listeners. So let's let's start out and let's talk about when a patient comes and they are initially presenting. So tell us what the initial steps are taken when a patient with a fever and cough or other symptoms of respiratory virus comes into the emergency department. What do we do right now? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I really like that question, too, because it really translates to kind of any outpatient environment that I can think of. The goal is to really to identify really quickly a patient with these uh, fever, cough, upper respiratory symptoms. And get them masked as soon as you can. And then as the clinician, you get the patient masked. And depending on what kind of facility you work in, if you're the person meeting the patient out in the waiting room or wherever you're first encountering that patient, it's good to just have yourself masked as well. A lot of uh, the folks that I work with in the emergency department, they just wear masks all the time this season anyway because of flu. So I think that population is really set up well for it. So we're talking about just the over-the-ear mask, the one that we can yeah. pull out of a box. Okay. Okay, very good. Yeah, really, a simple procedure mask is honestly, it's a great place to start. And just being mindful of your distance with the patient, if you can maintain like three to six feet, that's just a smart way to start out. Um, this patient may or may not end up having, you know, any of the respiratory viral pathogen panel, or they may be a COVID patient. And it's really smart just to start out both masked, being a little bit mindful of distance, and then also just kind of getting them to the right place timely. Um, you don't want them kind of waiting around the waiting room <laughs> any longer than they should. But that's a really good place to start. If you have any suspicion, um, if the patient comes in with any kind of upper respiratory symptoms, cough, if they've been a patient that seems to have had a fever, um, any kind of science thing going on or anything, just go ahead and both mask up, okay. uh, especially before you go on and walk through other areas. Okay. So it would be safe to say that we're triaging these patients uh, very quickly, moving them to a place it's true. apart from other patients. Yeah. And that's why I think, because, you know, I've had um, experience over a lot of different practice settings and the ED, they really get it right. They do such a good job. The whole name of the game is you get the patient through the front and you triage them and you start thinking about who's the sickest, um, infection control, how to get people what they need as quickly as possible uh, in the safest way possible for very many people of different acuity. So I think the ED really gets it right. Uh, they err on the side of caution um, and they'll, they're very quick to mask and kind of control the spread of anything. They do a good job with that. Mm-hmm. So after assessment in the emergency department, uh, what happens next with the patient and also with the patient's family members or friends 
who have come with them into the emergency department. And and let's let's talk more specifically sure. if it is a, a COVID nineteen. Sure. Patient. And that's where it can get tricky pretty quickly. Um, we're really changing every day with the way we look at this. I don't think anyone needs told that. We've all seen evidence of it. So initially, uh, we kind of quickly screened patients for international travel with what we were looking for and these kind of specific symptom sets. Um, now we're a little bit more looking towards, well, we have community exposures at this point. So kind of the initial steps are to determine what patient might be at risk and kind of reacting appropriately for how how specific that risk is or kind of your index of suspicion. If it is someone you're thinking kind of hits those uh, concern points for COVID, I know in in the couple of facilities that I've seen, it would be very typical to kind of send family away if that was appropriate and the patient was stable enough um, and actually walk the patient kind of the quickest path you can use even outside the building to a negative pressure room if you have that available. Um, you can also take them into a regular exam room and just plan on that exam room having to have a very <laughs> a very intense or special cleaning process after you kind of test and determine if that patient uh, did, in fact, have COVID. But it, it gets really tricky just because you it's a, ba- it's a fine balance between overreacting and being cautious. And as everybody knows, the supplies, we're all kind of looking at the supplies we have and knowing we're going into the future, continuing to make these decisions. So that fine line between um, who meets testing criteria and who doesn't, it just kind of continues to evolve, and we have these great... Uh, guidelines from WHO and CDC and providers are getting really smart about it, uh, who who should be tested. But there is a fine kind of balance there between resource utilization and uh, panic or over-testing and then also just missing people that need testing or need quarantine or need to be very carefully mm-hmm. handled. A lot of patients that are stable, I think as everybody knows at this point, they can get tested and they can go home and recover just fine. But that's not everyone. So I think that's a big part of the job, too. And again, ED is just so good with their triage process in determining how sick is this patient? What are the comorbidities? What are the odds that if this person, you know, uh, tests positive with COVID-19, it's going to be more moderate um, or demanding or critical illness? So all of that kind of goes into the decision making on the providers, whether they decide to test or not, what they do kind of with family and uh, how environmentally controlled they want that patient it gets very individual and it's complex decision making i think the nurses role in it's really neat um we're kind of the ones that work through that triage process and we kind of uh, kick that decision making off and i don't envy the providers then who kind of really go through that and make the next decisions because i think it's very difficult and it's kind of changing in this rapid environment where we have we had some concerns about you know, where people traveled or kind of the uh, trajectory of the symptoms of the patient. And now we're having a little closer to home. We're recognizing that there are a lot of patients who don't fall into what we expect kind of for the the trajectory of the COVID illness. And again, a lot of that can play into comorbidities. In really previous treatments, some patients come in and they had seen their primary care and they got kind of worked up for pneumonia and treated and just didn't get better. That's another case where you might grab someone and go ahead and test them a little bit more quickly. Right. Right. It is. um, So we should tell our listeners it is March 23rd on the date of this recording, Um, knowing that things change day by day and availability of supplies may may differ in the days Mm -hmm. ahead. Um, And we're hoping that that improves. Um, But we do want to be mindful that we're, we're talking at one point in time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but back to the discussion about supplies. Yeah. And we, we just can't uh, turn on the TV. We can't look at news on our Internet without seeing the challenge of PPE yeah, or personal protective equipment. Um the availability of that, we are we know that we are looking at ways of working as carefully as we can with all of those supplies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to uh, make every donning and doffing <laughs> count, but let's let's step away from that for just a moment and let's talk about just the challenges. 
So I'm going to ask you, what are the challenges that nurses are experiencing with donning and doffing <laughs> of PPE? We'll just start there because that's something we can talk about easily right now. Absolutely. I I watch these nurses. Um, I mean, they're amazing. They have it down to a science. It's, it's a time you're just so proud to be involved with them. Um, I think the nurses that I've worked around that go in and out of the suspected COVID or patients that are waiting on rule out, like are these patients positive or not? So we have to treat them like they are. These nurses are incredible. They, I've seen them work through a checklist. They'll have a coach that talks them through putting things on correctly um, and kind of clears them to go into a room. That same coach typically will coach them. Uh, there's like a video set up so you can kind of see in the room and they'll get coached on taking the equipment off correctly. It's incredible. Another piece of kind of that equipment challenge. And I'm actually, I'm a lot less panicked and more just impressed and uplifted with how we've kind of tackled all this or continue to. Uh, nurses are very smart about deciding when to use that N95 mask, what constitutes an aerosolizing procedure that's more of a risk of um, airborne and would need that N95. And they're very smart about what constitutes, um, you know, a procedure mask, what's not going to general, generate aerosolization. Um, and so I think just nurses kind of being in and out of the room and making those decisions, keeping a track of who goes in and out of rooms, um, having that eyewitness of the donning and doffing, trying to keep that as safe as possible. Uh, and I think that really, it protects the supply chain, in my opinion. Uh, it limits the number of exposures or people going in and out of the room. I think it's easier on patients in a way. I've definitely seen um, where, like eye shields, I think that's become a little demanding. And uh, they're nurses are so, they're just genius. They're very sharp people who just kind of raise to these challenges. I know well, if, if it's not fabric, if there's no fabric on it, you can kind of wipe them down with bleach, kind of go through a process and just plan for the future, like if we need to start reusing things. I heard talk of uh, maybe them looking, I don't know who them is, I really don't, but looking into ways to maybe use UV light to tackle a little bit of a viral load on masks in the future if we need to. So all I'm trying to say is uh, we're, we're looking towards these challenges, and I think we have a lot of smart people tackling them. I think for us to be talking about it so openly and kind of looking at it uh, is really part of this whole process of stepping up and responding, and I think I'm getting to see some of that real time. And it's it's really neat. I'm actually uh, pretty, mm -hmm. I don't know what the right word is, optimistic about us stepping up to that challenge. We understand that in some cases, standard practice has been changed to meet supply shortage, such as reusing masks. Um, what impact has the shortage of PPE, masks in particular, had on clinicians? Sure. You know, I haven't really seen that um, up close. It's a thing we talk about. We're kind of thinking towards um, wiping down eye shields. That's the closest thing I've seen. I'm not even sure that they are reusing those. Okay. I think it's towards looking at um, if they're going to need to. I've been kind of watching, and I haven't really seen um, yet where we've got these big shortages. I think it's we're looking towards it and planning for it mm -hmm. and trying to be cautious with the use of what we do have. I know that we have listeners who are in areas where there is extreme need, mm -hmm. and uh, they really are having trouble getting a sufficient supply of masks. And, and I'm very thankful that in the area where you are, um, you've not seen it yet, but yet you are also working yeah. <laughs> uh, to find solutions uh, before the problem is too large. And we hope that there are many. We know that there are many people uh, who are working on those solutions as well. And I think going back and kind of, Looking over, um, looking over our guidance from CDC and WHO, and trying to really, really step back and think: when, when do we really need to use that N95, or when can we just use a procedure mask? I think just going back and kind of really thinking about what we're using when, and making smart decisions. I know you can't go back in time and change the way that we've already used some things, but going to the future, I think, I think that plays a heavy part in it. Us really stepping back and thinking, hey, do I do I need an N95? Am I going to be um, doing some kind of respiratory therapy on this patient that's going to generally air, generate aerosolization? And, you know, if you're out of those kinds of resources, take those next steps and think about distancing and other things that can just help. But, yeah, it's scary for sure. And I've definitely, where I haven't seen it up close, I'm aware that it, it's 
you know, probably coming for all of us in in some manner of severity or another. So it's, it's mm-hmm. scary, but I think we have a lot of really smart people looking ahead and trying to cope with these challenges. So let's uh, take that patient, the patient that we've been talking about, our theoretical patient <laughs> has come into the ED, um, has now moved on from the ED. Let's uh, transition and let's talk about the typical COVID-19 care plan. Can you describe that for us? Yeah, it's it's interesting to see because, you know, we really kind of look at things right now from like a supportive care. And that's been a neat development. So I don't mean to go back to the ED patient we just tried to walk away from. But really, most commonly, it seems like we scoop these people up out of ED. They come in, they're symptomatic. We go ahead and test them. And, and here's where things were really tricky for a while. And I can only speak, you know, for my limited experience, but we've just gotten huge relief from we were waiting five to 10 days to get test results back. So you get this uh, group of folks kind of coming through the ED and then you have to isolate them and make room for them. And you need these, all these uh, precautions and the right rooms and everything. So that, that was a real challenge. Um, it would be all about infection control, presumed infection. Um, the facility that I have experience with now they've developed their test and a lot of other hospitals have. So the, the turnaround time for testing patients just got way better. So you can, clear patients and say they're negative and kind of move them onto the floors a little bit more quickly. So that's helped a lot. But kind of the care plan would typically be um, they touch the healthcare system, we test them, and now we're waiting on results. And I do believe, um, you know, I'm, I'm more with the critical end of the spectrum right now, the more high acuity patients. But I believe if they're uh, stable enough, they can go home and be quarantined for a couple of weeks. There are a lot of programs now where they can remotely check in. They get sent home with um, some equipment to help them relay data, like a home pulse ox and like an iPad and everything. So they can kind of check in remotely. So these programs are spreading and helping a lot. So that's kind of one pathway a patient can take. Another pathway that I'm a little bit more familiar with is you get the patient in and we test them and uh, their oxygen demands are increasing and they're, you know, kind of flirting with respiratory failure. So those are the patients that really we get them in-house. We get them in um, those negative pressure rooms. Um, they kind of come up patient masked, clinician masked. We get them in that protected environment. And then we really start, um, we support them. We, we treat symptoms. There's some clinical trials right now on a couple of, of drugs if, if patients get sick enough and they meet criteria. But we really don't have a lot in our back pocket right now for a pharmaceutical treatment. Um, hydroxy, I'll say it wrong, hydroxyquinolone, I think is one that they're using. And they can add azithromycin to that. Um, we're not really sure how much that helps at this point. A lot of it's really supportive care. We uh, kind of expect the illness to last a couple of weeks. Um, so we'll help people get over the hump and support their respiratory symptoms through that. I think you get two negative tests 24 hours apart, I believe, before you're cleared to kind of interact with other people or leave your protected facility. Um, I know that was a very general way of talking about it, but really it's if you're sick enough, you end up mechanically vented and you get all that respiratory support. Um, we try to control fevers and symptoms and get people over the hump. That's kind of what we do treatment-wise right now. And we do know, um, we've seen so many images, we know that people do get very, very ill. Yeah. It's, and do require a, a mm-hmm. lot of very of supportive care. It's very true. And you know, now we have those test results coming back sooner, but I know it's, it's, uh, I don't know if common is the right word. I shouldn't speak more than my own experience has been. Um, but you'll kind of test for other viral pathogens. So you'll have a patient that's just super sick, requiring a lot of respiratory support. And you just, you feel pretty sure, you know, this is outside of the norm. This is probably a COVID patient. And they can come back with influenza and a bacterial pneumonia. And it's, and it's, I mean, it was kind of, that time of year anyway, we're at the tail end of seeing our flu people, but they're still there. And then they can have a bacterial insult on top of it. They can have COPD at baseline. So we still have all those patients that they can look the exact same and then end up kind of testing negative for COVID-19. So that's been really interesting too. And I think that's, again, goes back to that challenge of deciding who is it? Who do we test? Who are these patients that are suspected for it? Very tricky. Abigail, we're getting close to um, ending our conversation here today, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk 
about infection control because this is really where it's all at right now. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna invite you to give any um, closing thoughts and some discussion about infection control for our listeners. Sure, thank you, Sam. It's been such a pleasure to come on here. I really appreciate it. Um, kind of looking at infection control, and I, I really think I think the INS has that. It's just such a solid teaching point, and it's so valuable. That's really what we can all do and have in our back pocket right now. We have these non-pharmaceutical interventions against a pandemic. We're trying to slow the spread of this pandemic and not overwhelm our healthcare resources. And it really comes down to these just basic things that we all know um, and can kind of help reinforce for each other. Hand washing um, for the, you know, social distancing. If you just kind of think between three and six feet apart, think about your droplet precautions. Think about ways to minimize aerosolization um, of, you know, when you're working on patients and what that means for uh, airborne infection control. So really just stepping back into things that we kind of all know to do, basics like contact precautions, uh, droplet precautions, thinking about when we're aerosolizing and needing kind of airborne precautions and just that really basic hand washing, um, set, setting the example for it, educating our patients and talking about these really back to basics, non-pharmaceutical interventions. And I, I really think that we're set up in a great place to just uh, push that education and role model it. I really do. Okay. Thank you so much, Abigail. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me, Dawn Barrent, the host of the INS Infusion Room. I'm going to wrap up today's podcast by simply wishing you and your families and your patients well. Practice safely and live safely, and please stay in touch. This concludes this episode of INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We welcome your comments. You can reach us at infusionroom at ins1.org. That's infusionroom at ins1.org. Thank you for listening.